0: Everybody has faith. An atheist has faith. It's just a different kind of faith. Everybody has faith. Everybody puts their belief and faith in something or someone. Everybody puts their X on a ballot paper somewhere. Everybody has faith. Some people believe that we were made by a creator who has a plan and a purpose for our lives, others believe we're here by chance. There's no divine intervention in the universe. Both are positions of faith. They're views built on systems of belief. The person who believes that we're here by chance and life has no greater meaning has as much faith, if not more, than a person who believes in God. Have you ever noticed how conversations go between people who say they've got faith and people who say that they haven't? Often the phrase that's thrown into the conversation is, Oh, you're so close-minded. Have you ever heard that? Interesting that is. If you believe in a creator, a divine being, you're seen as closed minded If you believe that you're here by chance and there's no greater meaning to life, you're seen as open-minded. Fascinating. The person who believes in God, who believes there's more to life than what you can see, touch, taste or wear, yet he or she is seen as closed minded Yet the person who believes that there's nothing other than what you can see or experience is seen as open-minded. I wonder which is the most open-minded position to believe that this is all there is or to believe that there could be something or someone more. We all have faith and belief. The question is in what? Did you love the tortoise? He was stuck, wasn't he? Wasn't that great? Just touched the cockles of your heart, didn't it? He? Whatever that means. I'm not quite sure what the cockles of your heart are, but I'm, we won't go into that. The tortoise was stuck. He needed a fresh start. He needed intervention from the outside. Don't we all? And whether you are a Christian this morning and you've been a Christian for months or for years, or whether you're not, or whether you're exploring, or whether you've just become a Christian, I want to suggest to you, we all need a fresh look at God. We all get stuck. We all need some divine intervention. We all need a fresh look at God. What's your view of God? Jesus said some amazing words in John 14 verse 9. He said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Now, what he's saying is that for all human history, up to that point, no one had seen what God looked like until God came in the form of Jesus. And he says, if you want to know what God looks like, get a fresh look at him. Here I am. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. Now, next week, Dan is going to look at God the Son. He's going to look at Jesus. But I'm going to look at this word that, that is introduced by Jesus when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the eternal God. You've seen God in heaven, if you like. We're going to get a fresh look at that today. Jesus mentions the word Father. Jesus is saying, who's the Daddy? That's what He's saying. He's saying, do you know the Daddy? I'm going to show you the Daddy. If you've seen me, you've seen the Daddy. We're going to look at the Daddy this morning. I don't know what your view of God is. I've got some pictures that are going to come up. Is your view of God like this? A God who judges between who's good and who's bad? Who gets gold stars, who gets, you know, the red cross that the teacher loves to do with relish and flair and flamboyancy. Well, mine did anyway. Is that what your view of God is? Is it the second one, the God who really can't handle all of our prayers? You ever seen the film Bruce Almighty? Okay, and it's like, I can't handle all these prayers from all around the world. Is it the God who is distant, planning the fate of your life and the world, uncaring and unmoved? Is it the God who's just out to stop our fun? Is that your view of the daddy? Is that your view of God the Father? Is it a God who's unmoved by our pain and questions? Is it a God who who at a whim wants to destroy the universe for just his own reasons and we can't understand why? It's got world written on that big explosion. Is it a God who is some kind of impotent, ethereal, meaningless thing? Like a being that sits on a cloud. Or is it uh, it a being who sits at the top of the mountain and all roads lead up to the mountain? Whichever religion you can, it just all gets up to God somehow. Is that what it is? Or do we actually need a fresh look at God? Do we need a fresh look at God? I want to give you a fresh look at God this morning. I have with me a little prop. It's Simeon's trampoline. And um, I'm going to preach on the trampoline this morning. Bouncing up and down. You're getting worried, aren't you? I don't, anyone ever had one of these okay and um, whoa. Oh, it's been a while <laughs> and the amazing thing is if you've ever been on a trampoline with kids okay um, it's brilliant and if you've ever been on those really big ones and when our kids were little we used to go on them and they were great because what Simeon used to do was used to lie down on the trampoline and he used to use my weight to help him to fly okay he flew quite high <laughs> as it was and there was a moment in the spring when if we got it just right when both of us literally would just fly and it's a great experience and then of course the wife the mother comes out and gives you that look that wives and mothers can do which says health and safety alert dangerous dangerous child protection whatever else you want to say and you say right I'm not going to do that and so we calm down until she goes in the house and then away we go again And I want to use this as an illustration this morning, and it's not original to me, I wish it was. This is from a guy called Rob Bell, some of you will have heard of Rob Bell. It's out of his book Velvet Elvis, and this is his illustration of some of his material that I'm going to use this morning. And he suggests that faith is a little bit like a trampoline. And it's meant to be experienced, not analysed or dissected. And he said, "What is about a trampoline, and you can't see it from there, but underneath there are springs, and the springs are the thing that enable you to jump correct they uh, they're attached to the frame and they and they stretch and they flex and they enable you to jump and to experience the joy and the thrill of what it means to trampoline and he suggests faith is a little bit like that and the springs are all the beliefs or using a posh word the doctrines to our faith they flex and they stretch and they're attached but they're not an end in itself they're not the main thing they're to help us to experience jumping They're meant to help us experience God, to experience faith. And so one of those springs is a a spring called the Trinity. Now, if you've never heard the word the Trinity, don't look in the Bible because it's not there. The doctrine or the spring of the Trinity came into being centuries after Jesus had gone to be back with God the Father in heaven. Now, it is implied in the Bible in lots of ways, but the word is never found. It's just this belief that God is one God in three forms. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, okay? And this belief, like I say, is a spring, and you can take it off and you can examine it, and you can wrestle with it, but it's meant to help us to jump. It's meant to flex. It's meant to stretch. It's meant us to get a fresh look at God. The problem is, that I've discovered, is that some of our springs become an end rather than the means. And we feel as Christians, this is where I want to stretch your thinking, that if one of those springs was somehow, if we examined it, it wasn't quite right that the whole thing might collapse. So let me give you an example. If we discovered that the world wasn't created in six literal 24 hours, but was created in six periods of time, some Christians would think that their whole trampoline would collapse. I don't. Whether I believe that or not is immaterial. What I want to tell you is that our faith is not as fragile as that, folks. That if we discovered somehow that one of these beliefs, one of these doctrines, one of these springs wasn't quite as right as we thought it was, the whole thing wouldn't collapse. God is bigger than that. God is bigger than that, and we need a fresh look at an awesome, amazing God. And what I'm going to do this morning is I want to look at three springs with you, okay? And I want to. Th- challenge, I nearly said threaten, I want to challenge some of our thinking uh, when we look at this. Spring number one is this, that God is unfathomable, not predictable. God is unfathomable, not predictable. That's the spring that if you jump on that, it will enable you to experience God in incredible ways. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 12, the Bible says, then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sounds of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. It's like God was saying, listen, you heard me, you didn't see me. In the ancient world, people needed to see their God, so they made idols or images so they could see him, so they could understand him, so they could shrink him to their understanding. Job said, can you probe the limits of the Almighty? It's a question. Moses asked God at the burning bush, remember that story if you know it? And God spoke to him out of the burning bush and said, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, to Pharaoh. And uh, Moses said, all right then, in the end, He said, well, if I'm going, who shall I say sent me? And he gives him this really frustrating, annoying answer. He says, I am. That's not a name, is it? Do you know what I mean? Like, Is it Frank? Is it Derek? Is it Bernard? What's your name? Who sent me? And he said, I am. Now that word, I am, comes from the verb to be. So what God is really saying, this makes it much easier, I will be who I will be, is what he's really saying. Other people suggest that what he's actually saying, when you look at the, at the Hebrew, is I always have been, I am, and I always will be. Yesterday, today, forever. That's who sent you. And yet Moses is saying, yeah, but, but I need a name. He's saying, yeah, I am. I am. God is saying, if your goal is to figure me out totally, it's not going to happen. Later, Moses says, show me your glory. In other words, I want to see more of you, God. God says, okay, go up to the mountain, hide in the cleft of a rock. I'm about to pass by and you can see my back. That's what it says, you can see my back. It's interesting. The rabbis used to say that back was a euphemism for just where I was. God saying, Moses, the best you're going to do, the most you're capable of seeing is just where I was. Isn't that amazing? The moment we have God figured out, is the moment we're no longer dealing with God. You think, I've got so many questions about God. Correct. You should have questions about God. God is unfathomable, not predictable. The moment you've got him figured out is the moment it's not God. It's not God. You're dealing with somebody you've made up. And we think we're in control then because we understand him. And then he becomes a God of our manufacturing rather than eternal creator father God God is bigger beyond and more all that we could ever ask think or imagine the springs the doctrines the truths they're important but they're not God they're not God whether you believe in speaking in tongues as the initial sign of the evidence of the Holy Spirit that's a spring it's not God whether you believe in full immersion or sprinkling is a spring it's not God whether you believe healings in the atonement or not is a spring it's not God. And if one of those springs isn't quite right, the whole trampoline doesn't collapse. Amen? Because God is bigger than that. And we need a fresh look at God. Truth is not an end in itself. Truth is an insight into God, and God is infinite, unfathomable, no boundaries or edges. Truth has depth and layers and texture. One of the great theologians of our day, the actor Sean Penn, he's not a theologian, he said this, when everything gets answered, It's fake. The mystery is the truth. Wow. When everything gets answered, it's fake. The mystery is the truth. If you study the Bible and it doesn't lead you to awe and wonder, you're not studying the Bible. You're not studying the Bible. So I want to say this morning, is your view of God predictable? Then if it is, it's the wrong spring. You need a spring in your faith that's unfathomable. Whereas you jump and as you experience, you find out more of God. And as you find out more of God, you realise you don't know much about God. And that moment when he's all, well, I know everything and it's all, st- that's the moment you're not talking about God at all, but something completely different. So listen, this morning, you might have questions about faith and life and God. I want to invite you to the trampoline because that's what it's meant to be. That's what it's meant I'm going to ask the band to come back up. We're going to pause for a moment. We're going to do things slightly differently. We're going to just pause and we're going to worship this unfathomable God. And we're going to just kind of say, wow, God. And we're going to use a song that we haven't used for a long time just because the words are so apt for this morning. And It's the song called Indescribable. And it's like there's loads of these uble words in here. In, indescribable, unfathomable, and inflammable, and whatever else the other words are. But it's like this idea that I just can't work you out. And that's what it's meant to be. Faith is not meant to be predictable. God, the Father, is unfathomable and yet he invites us to know him isn't that amazing just sensing as we were worshiping you know what's unfathomable to me is like why is it that i've just come back from albania last week had an unbelievable time with these believers there and if you know anything about albania perhaps you don't 500 years they're under turkish oppression they get liberated immediately the italians take them over they get liberated immediately. The Germans take them over. The Second World War comes. They get liberated at the end of the Second World War, and the Soviet Union take them over. That's not hard line enough for them. So Tito and Yugoslavia takes them on. That's not hard enough. So China take them on. And there's a country of six. And, 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 I, and I'm thinking like, and there's no. And in 1968, they declare that they're the first atheist country in Europe. And they take all the pastors, some of the guys, with them, and they take the pastors and the, the leaders of faith and they put them in metal balls with spikes in and they put them inside a metal ball with spikes and they push them down the hills. And they put some of the pastors in the 60s and the 70s in barrels and they roll them down the hills where we were having a coffee. And they said, oh, this is the hill here where they rolled the pastors down in barrels into the sea to kill them. And what's unfathomable to me is that there are people all around the world who would do that for their God and yet many of us, including me, think, oh, you don't believe in God anymore. Do you know what I mean? I didn't get the job I wanted, or I didn't get this, or I didn't get that. I'm not sure there's a God. That's unfathomable, isn't it? Why some people would go through that, and they have a view of God that's so much bigger than the view that we often have isn't it. And I want us to say, God, please, enlarge our view of you. Give us a fresh look at God, who is unfathomable, not predictable. Second thing I want to say is is that, and I think this is a spring that many of us need to, to get right. God is a life giver, not a rule maker. Many of us understand God the Father as like this God and all he's about is rules. He's about something that you can't do and you shouldn't do that and don't do that and you're naughty if you do that. We see God, especially in the Old Testament, as harsh, vindictive and angry. We need a fresh look. Let me just give you a fresh look. So God says to Abraham, you know that son that I gave you, that like son that is, is, is my provision, you know that one, Isaac, I want you to take him and I want you to take him up a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to me just to show that you really are obedient to me and that you really love me. And Abraham, without flinching, takes his son, Isaac, up to the mountain, puts him on the, um, on the altar, is about to kill him with a knife and God stops him and says, you don't need to do that, i provided another Way there's a ram caught in the thicket. Now we look at that and we think, what a harsh, vindictive God. How could God do that? That's like cosmic child abuse. How could God do that? What we don't understand is that in the day when Abraham did that, everybody was doing that. Everybody was sacrificing their kids as a way of appeasing the gods. That's why Abraham didn't flinch because he lived in a world where that was commonplace. What actually happened there isn't about God being harsh and vindictive at all because when he took his son up there and he was about to kill him God said you know what we're not going to do this anymore you don't need to do that there's another way stop doing that he brought civilization on and forwards at that point God is not a rule giver God's a life giver And when God acts in the Old Testament, we have to understand it in the context of the world at the time. See through that and see that God is not all about being hard and harsh and vindictive. But God wants us to live life as He intended it to be. As He intended it to be. You know, the problem is when you view God as a rule maker, keep the rules or else you forget that all rules are immersed in a narrative. Understand what I mean by that? All rules are immersed in a narrative. They're in a story. So we look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and we think, oof, Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Take it out. No, it's in a story. Exodus chapter 1, the people of God are in slavery in Egypt. God sets them free. He liberates them. He enters into a covenant with them. He takes them on a journey. He takes them into the promised land. There they're going to be a new civilization, a new society. And if you're going to have a new society, you need some rules because those rules will give you Life. You see, and we don't get that. We don't understand that. That actually the rules that God has given us are not because he's harsh and vindictive, but because he wants us to live life. And life to all of its fullness. So I'll tell you what. If you don't lie, and you don't steal, and you don't covet, and you put God first, you're going to have a better life. And i tell you what. The big society is not David Cameron's idea. It's God's. God has this vision, this dream of a big society, of a community that really works. And any community that really works, it's got to have some rules. Not to be rules, but to be life-giving rules. Life-giving principles. Dorothy Day, who's a writer, said, Our work is to create a society where it's easier to be good. Isn't that amazing? Our work is to create a society where it's easier to be good. And we need a fresh look at God means we flip this issue of rules around so let me pick one okay do not commit adultery is one of the rules very easy to look at that as a do not commit adultery what God really wants is not for us just to keep that but he wants us to have really great marriages you see it's not about do not commit adultery you could say well I've gone through the whole of my marriage and I've not kept committed adultery but we had a terrible marriage we didn't grow in love I didn't express kindness we didn't develop we didn't discover more about each other but I kept the rule. You missed it. The rule there is meant to be, do not commit adultery is what we're about, but actually, God says, you should honour each other, you should respect one another, you should spend time with one another, you should want the best for one another, you should grow in your love over the years. It's about life. It's not about rules. God only gives rules as a means of giving life. We need a fresh look at God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures and you think that by them you have life, yet you don't come to me. You know the rules, you keep the rules, but you don't have the life. And I want to encourage you and inspire you and challenge you a little bit this morning. In your Christian life, are you keeping the rules or are you living life? And you might say, well, I won't keep the rules then. Well, then you won't really live the life. Are you with me? You say, well, I do keep the rules then. Well, then, are you living life? Because the rules are meant to be there to give life, not just to be rules. Third thing that we're going to say. God is a father and not a dictator. God is unfathomable, not predictable. God is a life giver, not a rule giver, as such. And God is a father, he is not a dictator. I understand that the term father is difficult for many of us, it's difficult because it's masculine. Okay, and God is not masculine or feminine. God is a being and he has attributes of both. But the, the word father is used because of the kind of world in which the Bible originated in. The understanding of what the father's role was and is. And I think we understand that to a degree. But the other reason it's difficult is because of our own experience. And whether you've had a great father or not, all of our human experiences are inadequate when it comes to God the father. So if you sit there thinking, oh, I'm not, you know, I can't engage with this because I didn't have a great experience of a father. Listen, the best experience of a father in this place is inadequate for us to understand what God the father is really like. So look at Luke chapter 15 with me, if you wouldn't mind. Luke chapter 15. Are you okay? Yeah. you with it, yeah? yeah. Who's going to get on the trampoline at the end of this message? <laughs> That's the response this morning. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> will do it children's worker. <laughs> so you know the story really, really well. I'm sure you do. The prodigal son or the, you know, the, the, the man with the two sons and, you know, he, the one goes to him, the younger one goes to him and he says, uh, basically, I wish you were dead. Is basically what he says. He says, do you know you know, when you die and we're like going to get, oh, I'm going to get off and your brother's going to get off. Could I have mine now? It's a little bit like saying, I wish you were dead really. And takes the money, takes all of that, leaves the father's house goes and lives, forgets all the rules, thinks he's living life because there's no rules. Okay, so he goes and spends it all, and he sleeps with who he wants to sleep with, and he, he he spends the money on what he wants to spend, and he drinks what he wants to drink, and does all this kind of stuff. All the money's gone, the life doesn't look so great then. Do you know what I mean? He wakes up, he's so hungry that he thinks, you know, I'm even that food that the pigs are eating. You know, I, I'd have that right now. And while he's in there feeding the pigs and then eating what the pigs are being fed. The Bible says he comes to his senses. And it says um, in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And it talks about, Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is, he is, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. Father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. In other words, I've kept all the rules. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's the most powerful story, I think. One of the most powerful stories about what God's like, isn't it? The Peter Rembrandt um, painted this incredible painting. If you've ever seen it anywhere. Um, of of this, depicting this and you see the father and you see his hand and the hand stretches out um, of the cloak onto the head of the younger son and you see the older brother in the side and the hand is feminine and yet the father is masculine. It's an incredible painting if you've ever seen it. If you look really close you see that the hand feels feminine. It's like this idea that God is not just man, it's man and woman, it's the whole thing, it's the whole parental thing and here's the younger son who was lost and now is found and the older one is in the house but far from the Father's heart. And I want to just talk to you a little bit about this, because I honestly think that most of us Christians, we know it here, but we need a fresh look at it here. We need a fresh look at what it really means to be loved by the Father heart of God. Let me just say three things about this Father. He loves him enough, the younger son, to let him go. That's hard, isn't it? I guess I know a little bit of the pain of this in in my own life because of that situation with Simeon. Many of you know that 12 weeks ago, um, we had to let him go and he'd gone into residential care. And he's doing really well, by the way. Uh, We saw him yesterday, went out with him, took him to the pictures. And it was good. He's had a difficult time sometimes adjusting and settling. Uh, But the pain of that and of letting him go, knowing that it's the right thing in this situation, but still it feeling wrong. I think I've got a little tiny insight into what it's like as a father to let him go. And I've got to be honest that sometimes when we've seen him, we've come away and I've said to Alison, he seems all right, can we have him back? And that's really hard because we know it's the right thing for him. But for us, for me as a father, it feels totally wrong. Do you know what I mean? And I just want to take him and say, I want you back. And I think this father in another kind of strange way would have said, well, you're asking me to go and I could let you go, but I could take you back but he lets him go. I think that is unbelievable. See, this father is preparing the son for adulthood. Then he's rejected by the son and he lets him leave. Why does he let him leave? Because more than outward obedience, the father craves inward love. You with me? He said, no, you're going to stay and you're going to keep the rules and you're going to do what I say and I will make you love me by doing the rules. How many of us ever thought like that as a parent? I have, loads of times. You're in my house, and when you're in my house, you obey. That's what we say, in it. Yeah, I do it as well, you know. But more than outward obedience, more than outward um, compliance to the rules, the father wants to love the man, the son, and he wants the son to love him back, so he lets him go. Some of you have probably done that with your kids. You know that. You know what that feels like. You're in good company. That's what God did with us, didn't he? created Adam and Eve, created us, gave us a free will and a choice, loves us enough to let us go. And he could have said, no, do you know what? You're going to obey me, you're going to love me, I'm going to make you do it. But God doesn't crave outward obedience. What he really wants is reality of relationship. Which is why he gave us free will and a choice. And he lets him go. And by letting him go, he creates the possibility of true relationship with his son. By letting him go, he creates the possibility of having a true relationship with his son. Of course, there's a risk to that. It might not happen. But the risk is great. But the reward is even greater. He could say, well, I won't pay the risk. I'll be risk-averse, all right? I won't pay the risk. I'll just make him stay at home and love me. He will love me. You will love me. You will do it. But that isn't what he wants. What he wants is real relationship. Now, the other son stays in that, lives by the rules of the house, but has no relationship with his father. See, that's the crazy thing, isn't it? The one is rebellious, the one is religious. Both of them miss it. You see, that's why we need a fresh look at God, because you might say this morning, well, I'm not like that naughty boy, do you know what I mean? I've obeyed the rules, and I stay in the house, and I come to church, and I read my Bible, and and I pay my tithe, and I don't do this, and I don't do the other, and I don't smoke, and I don't drink, and all that. But if you've got no relationship with the father, you've missed it as much as the rebellious son haven't we? All of us, me, all of us. The other son lives by the law, but his heart isn't after a relationship with the father. Both sons reject the love of the father. God doesn't want rebellion, but God doesn't want religion. God wants relationship. A guy called Wayne Jacobson said, in the long run, doesn't matter whether rebellion or religion keeps you from a vibrant relationship with the father, the result is the same. The result is the same. So he loves him enough, to let him go. That's what God's done for you. Do you know that? God loves you enough to let you go. And you might say, well, I'm keeping the rules. But if you don't have a relationship with him, then you've missed it. You've missed the trampoline that God wants you to enjoy. Second thing, he loves him enough to wait for him and to watch for him. I think that's amazing. You you get a sense from the story. It's not really um, literally there, but you get a sense that, that he's let him go and he's kind of pacing up and down every night. You just get that sense that he's out on the veranda or the porch or whatever they had in it, Probably whatever. Uh, you know, and he's waiting and he's watching every, and he's like saying, shall I go? Shall I?" Because he's got the resources, hasn't he? He's a rich man. He could, he could get people up. He could get you know, private detectives if they had those in this day. And he could find the son, but he doesn't. He waits and he watches every night for him. He's waiting for him to return home tell you a story. There's this really, really well-to-do businessman. This is many decades ago and he goes along to um, a cru- a, an evangelistic event Okay, where a famous preacher's come in, big crowd in an auditorium and he goes along every night and sits at the back and he really likes what the evangelist is saying. He's nodding and he really likes it. And when it comes to the response time, when the evangelist is saying, right, if you want to give your life to God, if you want to, you know, really follow God, then you come down the front and we'll, you know, respond and understand that dynamic. And every night he, he doesn't do it. And one of the ushers kind of says to him very, very nicely, you know, uh, you know do, do you, do you want to do go down? Do you, know, do you want to go down and, and, and pray the prayer? And he says, no, I don't need to go out to the front to pray to God. I can do it right where I am. And this happens night after night after night. On the last but one night, the usher again says, you know, you've been coming every night. Do you want to come down? I'll come with you if you like. He says, young man, I don't need to do that. I can stay right where I am. I can pray to God right where I want, if I want to. Okay. Final night. This is the last night the evangelist is here. This time, this man is so touched by what he hears that there are tears coming down his cheek. And he turns to the usher, this young man who's been every night trying to urge him to come out. And he turns around to the young man, he says... Please, would you come with me? I want to go down and give my life to God. Do you know what the usher said? Now, you don't need to do that. You can do it right where you are. You see, it isn't about going out to the front or about sitting in your seat. It's about what's happening inside you, isn't it? When he came to the point where it wasn't all about him and his control, where he wanted to know God the Father, then it doesn't matter where you are. You've come to your senses, you've come home. Do you understand? You've come home. It's a matter of the heart. It's a change of the heart, not a change of geography. And for this young man, it wasn't just that he'd come home physically. It's that in his heart, he'd come to his senses. He was broken and he wanted to come home to the Father. And the tragic thing is that there are many, many Christians sat in churches all across our nation who've not come home. Who've not come home. Who've not come home. To know the Father is to love the Father. And to love the Father is to return to the Father. It's to come home. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4, God's kindness leads you to repentance. That word repentance literally means a change of mind, a turn of direction. We're going away from God, we're coming to God. It's a change of thinking. God's kindness leads you to repentance. Repentance. And then the third thing is this. So he loves him enough to let him go. He loves him enough to wait and watch for him. Then he loves him enough to embrace him. This is an awesome picture. You know, we see God the Father in this story as the God who releases the son, as the God who waits and watches. You then see him as, when he sees him, as the God who runs towards his son, which is incredibly mind blowing for the hearers of the day. This is a, a wealthy Jewish man running. Like, they don't do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, wealthy people don't run, you know? I mean, if you watch the elections, you know, you didn't see Gordon Brown running around, did you? Or David Cameron running around. Everybody else around them runs, but they walk stately, don't they? You don't see the Queen, like, grabbing her dress and, like, you don't see it. That was a bit camp, that you don't. <laughs> but this man doesn't care about protocol, doesn't care about how he looks. This man sees his son coming home to him, so he runs. That's phenomenal. That's like, whoa. That's breaking all the social etiquette. And he runs towards him. And when he gets him, he doesn't do what most of us do. I have told you, look, look at what happened to you. I told you this would happen. You. you know, he just embraces him, falls on his neck, kisses him. Probably stank like pigs, didn't he? Probably stank pigs, you know, gruffly, I don't you know what i word. You know, unshaven, stinking alcohol, pigs, doesn't care, hugs him, kisses him. Brings him home, massive party. Elder son, outside, wants to bring him in, wants to love him as well, doesn't come. He loves him enough to embrace him. And I want to say, as we, as we draw to an end, we want to just respond to God this morning. Not by coming out, but just responding to God in your heart. I want to say, do you need a fresh look at God again? Do you, is it time for you to come and jump? Is it time for you to come and to get back on the trampoline and to experience something, do you know what I mean, of the joy and the thrill and think, you know, I understand some of these springs, but I've never really stretched them. I've never really allowed these springs to take me higher in my experience of God. That's quite weird, that is. Well, I want to invite you to do that. The start of this series, next week Dan's going to look at God the Son. Then I'm going to look at God the Holy Spirit, which is Pentecost Sunday, 23rd of May. We're going to get a fresh look at God. And I want to say to you, please, if you have actually in your heart, you know what you you're like saying, I really want that love, the Father heart of God, but I haven't experienced it for a long time, then perhaps you need to come home. Perhaps you need to come home. And that's not about geography. It's all about heart. It's all about heart. I want you to just sit and watch something on the thing. You won't see the words altogether clearly, But if you listen to the words, you'll get the point of what this is all about. Okay, so just take a look at this.
1: It's just foolish to think that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. That an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and suffering in the world is a comforting thought. However, it is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. In a world with no God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. But with God, life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. Without God, everything is fine. It is ridiculous to think I am lost and in need of saving. And that's how I felt before Christ opened my eyes, changed my heart, and reversed my thinking. I am lost and in need of saving. It is ridiculous to think everything is fine without God. Life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. The more you have, the happier you will be is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I am deserving of hell. The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, that an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and suffering in the world, that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. It's foolish to think God does not exist. I will live my life according to these beliefs.